0: As we come before God's Word, I'd like to invite you to follow me in reciting what the Jews called the Shema. It is part prayer, it is part confession of faith, and it's part invitation to a life centered around God. Jesus, of course, would make it the basis of the great commandment. If you'll follow after me in Hebrew, we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai 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 ha- Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, you may see on the screen the picture of the ark and the flood. And it reminds us we're in the story of Noah and we're to the actual flood today. Just a few verses from chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in your generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. One of the things that is true uh, about floods is they always leave evidences of where they have been. So whether uh, you are in a park or in a neighborhood or by um, a riverbank, you can usually, by the debris after a flood, figure out about how high the water got. Uh, Water will often leave its uh, traces and evidences of where it has been. And so we come to the story this morning of Noah and the flood. And the way I'd like to invite you to think of the story with me this morning is not just about destruction of animals or plants or people, and not even just a, a, a story of an ark and a family on an ark. But I'd like to invite you to think of the story of the flood As evidence of where God has been, of part of what I call the movement of God, or the flow of God's salvation. Because to take the flood story by itself is to miss part of the larger picture of God. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of walk you through the Bible by looking at places where water shows up. And of course, we start with the flood But what you need to know is what we talked about last week is that the setting for the flood is intense chaos, wickedness, death, destruction, and evil. Remember the description of human beings, every uh, thought of their heart was only evil all the time. That's how bad it had gotten. So one of the things we see about the water in this picture is that the water really is like a water of cleansing Our purification. The evil is so great, God has to, in a sense, wash that evil away. But unfortunately, the water uh, washed, may have washed the evil away, but evil and sin and chaos and death return. And they return in a very powerful form in the nation of Egypt. And Egypt, as we go forward in the Bible, has enslaved God's people. The people are treated not as human beings, but they're treated as Property. They are not valued for themselves. They're valued only for what they can do for the country of Egypt. They have no inherent worth on their own. And God's response to this sort of slavery is to take God's people to water. This time the water is the Jordan River. Now the interesting thing, um, excuse me, is the Red Sea. Now the interesting thing is that when God had flooded the earth, God had... Chaos, And you may remember in creation what God did is God held the water um, from the heavens and, and contained it. And then the water below the earth contained that. And so that's how you had dry land. So in the flood, all that gets broken loose again. And so chaos, in a sense, wipes out chaos. But when we come to the Red Sea, there's an ordering of this chaotic water. And so you may remember the story that when they get to this water, God takes it and divides it in two so that the people can walk through to freedom. There is an order as as if God is saying, I'm in charge uh, here. And the violence and the chaos, the sin, the death, the slavery will not rule. I will rule. Uh, For the Jews, as I may have told you before, water always represented something terrifying and mysterious. It represented chaos and death. And so it was a way of God saying, I'm in charge of that. I'll split it. And so they walked through on dry ground to freedom. Now, freedom needs a place to flourish. And so there was a place where God wanted to say, we want to start over again after this uh, chaos has been subdued. And I want a place where you can live the way I've called you live. And they called that place the promised land. But to get to it, You won't be surprised. They came to a body of water. Now, the body of water is the Jordan River. I don't know if you've ever been to the Jordan River, but it's not the Mississippi, and it's not the the Nile, and uh, it's not the Amazon. But there are times at flood stage where that can be very intimidating to cross, especially if you don't know how to swim. And the Israelites never learned to swim because they didn't want to get in water because water represented chaos. So God said, okay, priest, I want you carrying this ark with all their robes on. They don't know how to swim. I want you to jump into that water. And if you will jump into that water, it will part, and you can cross to the promised land. Now, if I'm a priest, I'm thinking, say what? But they didn't. And in the midst of that water of Jordan, they crossed. And sure enough, it parted and they moved into promised land. And again, chaos seemed to be subdued. And there was hope and opportunity that there would be a world without violence and and sin and all the things that oppressed people, but it didn't last long. And soon Israel turned away from God. Soon nations turned on nations. Soon uh, slavery again was rampant. And we get a brief interlude in the water story, and we come back to the Jordan River with a man named Naaman. Now, the thing about Naaman is he's not an Israelite. He's a Syrian, and he's a general. His job is to make war on the Israelites. He has slaves in his house, but he also has leprosy. And it was a way of the Bible reminding us, you know, the thing about sin and chaos is it doesn't just have... Uh, Corporate consequences. It doesn't just turn people, nations against nations, but there are actually physical consequences to the sin and chaos. And so Naaman is a leper, but he has a slave girl who tells his wife, you know, if the master will go uh, to the prophet Elisha, he can be healed. So he goes to the prophet Elisha, and the prophet Elisha said, there is this body of water, the Jordan River, and if you will bathe in it seven times your skin will become clean. And Naaman, you recall, says, what? We have bigger rivers than that, several bigger rivers than that where I come from. But they implore him, he gets into this not so mighty water and comes out, his skin fresh as a baby, as God's power has moved in the water to restore, to make order out of chaos and to begin things anew, to give Naaman his own promised land. But alas, it doesn't hold. Israel turns against God. Nations turn against God. They turn against each other. Chaos, violence, sin, reigns. And finally, it has gotten so bad that God says, I can no longer deal with this from a distance. And so God decides to do something about it. And God enters the womb of a young woman named Mary. Now, there's not much water probably here. I'm not an obstetrician. I'm the son of an obstetrician. But this is the amniotic fluid. And in Mary's womb, God makes a statement. I have come to personally deal with the slavery, with the sin, with the oppression, with the wickedness, with sin and illness and death, and I will deal with it myself. What's interesting is in the Gospel of John, uh, one of the paraphrases says this about when Jesus came into the world that he moved into our neighborhood. In Greek, it says he pitched a tent among us in John. He came to be with us in Mary's womb to deal with all of this, and he did. Now, he didn't do it right away, as you know. He lived a rather obscure life for about 30 years, and then he began his ministry. He got into the flow of what God was doing to fix chaos and to renew creation And so you can guess where do you go if you want to get in the flow of what God is doing? You go to the water. So he goes back to the River Jordan. And there are people in the River Jordan, they're being baptized by John. And there's a line of them, which is kind of interesting because they thought of the River Jordan as chaos, just like um, they would have thought of uh, any sea as chaos, any body of water. But they are so desperate to be a part of what God is doing that they get in the water to be baptized. Like, if God is moving, I want to sign up. And Jesus, by presenting himself to John in the Jordan, says, I'm with you in this. There's a story you may have heard before. A guy was leading a tour group to Israel. And so, you know, in the Jordan River, people always want to renew their baptismal vows or be baptized if they've never been baptized. Well, this is one of the times when the Jordan was flowing pretty well. He lost his balance and suddenly he got swept downstream in the Jordan. And so people in the tour group are yelling at him like, watch that rock, turn to your right, turn to your left. They're all shouting. Another guy though, who had been on this trip before, knew what to do. He went ahead of him, jumped into the water at just the right place and caught him and rescued him. Jesus is not one who sits from heaven and says, turn right, turn left, look out. Jesus in the Jordan River says, I'm with you in the midst of this thing. I'm not standing on the bank yelling at you. I'm right smack in the middle of this with you. And if you will be baptized and be in this water, you'll be with it, you'll be with me in this battle. And one of the ways to look at the miracles of Jesus and the teaching and the preaching of Jesus and the gospel is simply this. Jesus is inviting people to join in the flow of God's power to again order and subdue chaos. And he's inviting people to join him in that battle. One of the things we like to say parenthetically is if you look at the Jordan River and Jesus' baptism, here's some things you notice, that the five things we like to talk about, sonship, that we are sons and daughters of God. Jesus says, is told, you're my beloved son. Uh, The text, the Bible, is quoted. Uh, You are my son is a quote from the Psalms. Uh, Action, by getting in the water, Jesus says, I'm with you and I want you to join me in being with other people. We talk about relationships. Jesus is with them closely and the Holy Spirit, of course, comes on his head. We get a picture of the things we claim in this church to believe and to practice that God's power makes a difference against the chaos, sin, and slavery of this world, and God wants you and I to jump in that water and make the difference with God. Well, you can imagine if you're part of the forces of chaos or wickedness or evil, you're not gonna sit around for this, idly watching your dominion be destroyed or reduced. So finally, the powers of sin, wickedness, evil, and death, they get together together. And it looks like they have Jesus trapped. And they have him trapped on a cross. And it appears that they've won, except, I don't know if you've looked in the Gospel of John at the story, but the soldiers who, who, who um, double as amateur coroners, you know, they have to make sure the body is dead they, before they can take it down. They stick a spear in Jesus' side. Do you remember that story? And what comes out? Blood and, anybody? Water. And so they think he's dead, but any Jew who reads that story goes, uh oh, I know where this is going. That's not much water that came out of his side, I'm sure. But enough to say, God is moving again, and chaos and sin and death and all the things that work against the life God has in mind for us, they're in real trouble. So it's no surprise. That with Jesus' death and resurrection, sin and death are conquered and subdued. That by the time we get to Revelation, we get a story of two more bodies of water. Now, what's interesting is in Revelation 21, we, talk, we find out about the sea. And does anybody remember what it said about the sea? It says, and the sea was no more. Now, that used to bother me. Because I'm like, well, I like to go to the beach. You know, I grew up in Corpus. Uh, I, you know, I love to go to Hawaii. I like... But that's not what it means at all. The sea, as you remember for the people in the Bible, was that place where chaos, sin, wickedness, everything that opposed God lived there. And we're told that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of the movement power of water that God has used throughout the Bible story, that sea is gone. There's no place of resistance to God left. But there is another body of water And it's called the river of, anybody? Life. And on the river of life, there's like, on either side of the banks, there's a tree of life. Not just one, there's one on either side. And suddenly the instrument that they feared the most, water, the destructive power of water, has been subdued. And now the water is giving life. The very thing they feared the most has been turned in to the thing that will bless them the most, and that's the story of God that starts from the flood and goes through Revelation is to say those things that enslaved us, those things we're so afraid of, the things that break our hearts. Those are the very things that God heals, turns around, and uses to empower. Let me say it another way: We win. According to Revelation, we win the power of God through the water, we have won. But not yet, because actually we're not in Revelation yet. We all live in the Bible times. We live somewhere between Acts and Revelation. So let me take you to one more body of water. Now what's interesting about this, this is in Acts 8, and it's really weird because the guy that comes to the body of water is never named, and the body of water is never named. This is all we know about him. He's a eunuch. Well, that means there's some sexual identity issues with him. He'll be an outcast. He's an Ethiopian. That means he's a foreigner. That means by regulation, technicality, he's not allowed in the temple of God. But this foreigner who doesn't fit has been to the temple, tried to get in. He's on his way back. He's reading about the Messiah, and Philip is brought by God to him and explains to him the power of God working to change everything and renew creation and renew ourselves, and he wants to sign up. He's like, well, there's some water. What's to prevent me from joining up? I think the Bible's very intentional in not naming the person because the story is not just about him, it's about any of them. There's nothing in our past that's so bad. There's nothing in our, our life parent, uh, so off at the moment that we cannot come to this body of water. Or as my friend um, Chris Estes says about recovery, you don't have to wash your hands to use the soap. We can come and be clean. And The body of water isn't named because it's, I think, saying anyone, anywhere, at any time can decide to join up and be a part of what God is doing. And so I invite you this morning after communion, if you'd like, come and just touch the water. Say to God, God, I want your healing, cleansing power to flow through my life. Make it new. Make it fresh. And by the way, I will help you, God, take this news to other people.